This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It's Friday, November 4th, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome to the Guy Benson Show here from New York City. Very happy to have you along every single weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. That's our time slot. We encourage you to listen live. Many ways to do so. Go to GuyBensonShow.com. You can listen on the live stream, the Fox News app, Fox Nation, Odyssey.com, A-U-D-A-C-Y.com, our great affiliates scattered across the country, a growing group, by the way. And if you can't do any of that, or at least for all three hours, there's a podcast on demand totally free every day, GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm the political editor at TownHall.com. I'm a Fox News contributor. We are four days out from the midterm elections. Important, consequential elections. And to that end... We'll be working through the weekend here in New York for Fox, doing some TV stuff. I'll be hosting The Big Show at 5 p.m. Eastern tomorrow on Fox News Channel with my friend Katie Pavlich and some others. There's a special election-only edition, the rare Sunday outnumbered at noon Eastern. That's Sunday on Fox News Channel. I'll be on the virtual, I guess it's sort of like an actual couch, but it's outdoors. I'm not sure exactly what the setup's going to look like. But I'll be the one lucky guy that is on Sunday. Then, of course, we resume our normal coverage in earnest intensely Monday into Tuesday as well. I'll be joining the Fox team coverage on election night from Washington, D.C. Here's what we've got on the show today. Jam packed on this Friday. Later this hour, Herschel Walker, Republican nominee for U.S. Senate in Georgia, also Heisman Trophy winner. Some of the polling suggesting He's not only ahead, maybe he's got a shot at winning outright without a runoff in Georgia. What does he think? We'll ask him. In the next hour, Shannon Bream is going to be here, our colleague and friend, anchor of Fox News Sunday. She'll also be a big part of the network coverage of the elections coming up on Tuesday. Also a big court watcher and expert. We want to ask her about a very significant oral argument that happened at SCOTUS this week on a controversial hot-button issue. Also in that middle hour, Joe O'Day, U.S. Senate candidate and nominee for the Republicans out in Colorado. He will join us again. Real Clear Politics has moved that race into a toss-up category. Why? Things got a little fiery at their debate that he had with his opponent, Senator Michael Bennett, the Democrat. We will get his reaction to all of that. In our final hour, just after 5 p.m. Eastern, Robert Cahaley of Trafalgar. This very interesting sort of tip of the spear pollster that has established itself as a very intriguing player in that space over the last couple of cycles. 
He is their chief pollster. We've had him here before, including last week. We will get kind of his final thoughts on what he's seeing in the data and will crisscross the country in terms of those races. You don't want to miss that conversation. And then in the back half of our final hour, we will have Brian Kemp, the Republican incumbent governor of Georgia, who is up for reelection. Stacey Abrams, it's a rematch from four years ago. We will get a closing argument from Governor Kemp here on the show. So I hope that's enough for all of you. It's so much coming here over the next three hours. I want to begin by sort of framing up an issue ahead of Tuesday that I think is important. And this gets a little bit into sort of the political prognostication and hardcore analysis side of what we do here. But I think if you're ever going to do it, now's the time. And I brought this up. In some detail this morning on Fox News Channel, I was on with Bill and Dana on America's Newsroom, and we were talking about, well, previous midterm elections and sort of the historical wins and the way that they blow and some of the trends. And part of what I used as a hook into this conversation as we got going was a new story that I saw yesterday from The Washington Post which is kind of talking about how Democrats are already very worried about what's going to happen on Tuesday, and some of them are pre-spinning what's going to happen. Their expectation is they're going to lose. I think we all generally understand it's not going to be a good night for Democrats. The question is, will it be sort of like a mediocre bad night for them or a cataclysmic night for them? I think that there are various scenarios that could play out along that spectrum. But... At least to me, it seems telling that some people in the Democratic Party and close to the White House are already kind of telling stories to themselves and to each other and maybe to the public about what next Tuesday is going to mean after the losses happen, which does not indicate a lot of confidence in the Democrats' position here. And here's what that story in The Washington Post said, quote, Biden allies are preparing to spin even a defeat as a win for the president. Since President Barack Obama lost 63 seats in 2010 and President Trump lost 40 in 2018 and Biden is not expected to lose as many. So I think on a very superficial level, that's what they have come up with. The ever ingenious brain trust over in Biden land. Well, Obama lost 63 House seats in his first midterm. Trump lost 40 in his first midterm. Well, if we lose less than that, then it's really not so bad. It's kind of like a win in some ways for Biden. It's absolute nonsense. And here's why. As I've said a few different times, and I want to put a very fine point on it here today, and I wrote about it at townhall.com, and as I mentioned I got into it pretty specifically on TV this morning. The number of seats gained, follow me here, the number of seats gained by a party in an election is much less important to me than the number of seats they end up controlling after the election. Because the capacity to gain that number kind of depends on where they're starting, right? Where's the baseline? So, for instance, when you think back to 1994, the Gingrich Revolution, or 2010, what Barack Obama called the shellacking of the Tea Party wave, 
the Republicans were in a very bad position in the House going into those cycles because they had lost for years. Right. Republicans got trounced in 2006, then lost even more in 2008. So they were, in terms of seats, in the mid to high 170s in both 94 and 2010, kind of like rock bottom. They were starting out so low that they had a lot higher room to grow, which is how you end up getting 50-plus seats in 1994, 60-plus seats in 2010. It requires a ton of low-hanging fruit just there for the taking before you start eating in and getting a bigger wave, right? Because the baseline is kind of rock bottom. So while those are eye-popping impressive numbers, ooh, 63 seats in 2010, and it was shocking. What, to me, is the more important number is, what's the number of seats that they actually get total at the end of the election? How many seats do they control? So after 1994, after that wave, the Republicans controlled 230 seats in the House, 230 out of 435. In 2018, when the Democrats had their wave year under Trump, they ended up with 235. Right? So they were at 195. They gained 40 seats. They ended up at 235. That was their 40-seat swing. In 2010, when the Republicans gained those 63 seats— they ended up with 242 seats, which is a huge number for them. And then there was 2014, and this one really helps crystallize my point. In 2014, the Republicans, quote-unquote, only won 13 or gained 13 House seats in 2014. That's it. A baker's dozen. Doesn't seem that impressive, does it? compared to 50-plus or 40 or 63, these huge numbers. Only 13 in 2014. But how many seats did they control after that election? Here's the answer, 247. I remember they were really feeling optimistic and trying to get to 245. They had a slogan, the drive to 245, and they got to 247 out of 435 seats. So even though the number of seats gained looks kind of small, 13, it's because they were already at a large majority. They were already in really good shape. There wasn't that much room to grow, and yet the outcome, the seats controlled, of 2014 really illustrates how big of a wave that election was, where the more impressive number was gaining nine Senate seats that cycle because there was so much more room to grow on the Senate side. This is my point. And the point, I think, totally explodes the ridiculous claim that some of these Biden friends and allies and spinsters are trying spinmeisters are already trying to, I guess, foist upon us, which is, oh, well, if the Republicans gain fewer than 40 seats or 63, looking back at some of those big numbers, then it's kind of a win for Joe Biden. It doesn't make any sense. If the Republicans just do what the average gain is with an unpopular president in a midterm election, the average is 37 seats, that would put them at 249, almost 250. 37 is less than the Democrats' Trump wave four years ago, right? Fewer seats gained, but they would be at nearly 250. That would be the number that matters. 
even if they have a below average, quote unquote, showing, let's say they gain 20 seats on Tuesday in the House. That would mean that the Republicans would have more seats that they control next Congress than they did after the Gingrich revolution. And right in the ballpark of what the Democrats did after 2018. So what the Biden people and some of the media might try to do is say like, oh, well, they only gained 20 seats compared to these much higher numbers. Wow, you know, eye-catching numbers from previous cycles. That stuff matters less. The consistent baseline is seats controlled. That's the number to keep an eye on, not seats gained. And I think there's some preemptive sleight of hand being attempted by the Biden folks to try to focus only on one metric that matters a lot less. So I'm just reacting in my own preemptive way to warn you and try to focus our attention on the context that actually matters. And that was the point. I I know it's sort of in some ways common sense and intuitive, but in other ways it takes some explaining. And I probably wouldn't have taken this much time to explain it if not for the spin they're already putting out there, spewing into the universe in advance of what may or may not happen on Tuesday. So let's see where the number ends up. The Republicans, their baseline is a lot higher this time around because of their unexpectedly good night that they had on the House side of things in 2020, where the expectation was the Republicans were going to lose more House seats, farther fall farther into the minority in 2020, and instead they gained double-digit seats. They gained 13 or 14 seats in 2020, which is why they just need a tiny little bump, half a dozen seats there in the majority. Everything on top of that is padding the majority. Let's see the final number of seats controlled, not the number of seats gained. That's just my public service announcement. Also, two more quick public service announcements on this front before we break. Number one, don't dive or don't dive rather too deeply into the early voting numbers because treacherous waters, it's really hard to interpret. Some of them have a pretty good track record. John Ralston out in Nevada, and Sean Trendy's written about this a lot. The trends in Florida are just so undeniably obvious that I think it's fair to talk about them. But overall, Everyone has their theories about what the early vote means. It's a mess. Don't invest too much in that. Point one. And second point, final point. If you go back and look at the national popular vote, if you want to call it that in the House, over recent cycles dating back 20, 30 years, there has been routinely a gap between the polling, like the final average of the congressional generic ballot, and what actually happens. Sometimes that gap has favored the Republicans. Sometimes it's favored the Democrats. So do not get over exuberant if you are a Republican voter. Do not get complacent. Do not think that this is just an automatic layup. Sometimes polling mistakes favor the Democrats. Waves are not accidental. Waves are made by work and by voting. Vote. Vote. We're just getting started on this Friday. It's the Guy Benson Show. Stay tuned. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. 
Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I'm Guy Benson. We are back in New York City. And this is a very disturbing story. Unfortunately, is it a surprising story? A woman was jogging in the early morning hours, like 5 a.m., 5.30 a.m. yesterday, along the Hudson River, downtown, West Village area. She was attacked by a homeless man who choked her, raped her, and robbed her. He then apparently took one of her credit cards to go buy something at a store. That's how they caught him. This woman traumatized, just out for a run along the Hudson River Thursday morning. So they find the guy, and guess who the suspect is? An alleged serial rapist with 25 priors. 25 priors. And he was out on the street, of course, in New York City, lying in wait for yet another victim whose life will never be the same. In what world is a man like this doing free on the street? I think most Americans believe in second chances, especially after paying a debt to society. Do we believe in 25, 25th chances? There is something gravely wrong in some of these places with these types of laws. And the victims are the ones who pay the price for it. The governor of this state, when she's confronted with one horrible example after another, like the woman who was beaten severely by her husband on camera, he was arrested, released on no bail, then he came back to finish the job and murdered her in front of her kids. The governor of this state, happened here, was asked about it. She blamed the system. She's the head of the system. She's the governor. She could have done any number of things to change the system and the laws that are psychotic. And instead, she goes to the debate and wonders why the Republican is so weirdly obsessed with keeping dangerous people locked up. And she says that the Republican talking points about crime in New York and elsewhere are a conspiracy, even though the stats are all up in a bad way in this city and in this state. And now a woman was sexually assaulted by a man with 25 priors just yesterday morning. It's madness. It has to stop. 
out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Welcome back. I'm Guy Benson. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast always free of charge on demand every day. Back with us here on the show is Herschel Walker, Georgia Bulldogs legend, Heisman Trophy winner, and of course, the Republican nominee for the U.S. Senate in Georgia. And Herschel, welcome back to the show. Hello there. How are you guys doing? Doing well. I want to hear how you're doing. What is your sense of the race? I've seen a number of polls out in the last couple of days that almost all show you tied or ahead by a few points. And a couple of those polls, Herschel, as you know, have your campaign knocking on the door of 50%, which is what would get you past a runoff and just winning outright. Is that possible? What do you think ahead of Tuesday? Well, that is possible, and that's what we're planning on doing. But one thing we're going to do right now, we're going to run like we're five or ten points down. We're going to continue to go and travel around the state, talk to the voters about the differences between Senator Warnock and myself, with he believing in high gas prices. We believe in lowering the gas prices by being energy independent again. He believes in overtaxing you. We believe in lowering your taxes. We don't believe men should be in women's sports. And we want people to know in two short years, this is what you're going to get. Well, I believe in something totally different. I believe that we can get out and get things done for ourselves. Don't have to give our energy to our enemy. That we can do all our stuff right here. I believe we can get the men out of the women's sport. I think we can secure that border. And we can bring people together again. I don't believe in the separation where he believes in trying to separate people. Well, I don't. I know that you've reacted to this elsewhere already, Herschel, but just recently, it was last weekend, President Obama, the former president, was down there in your state campaigning for the Democrats. And he said, well, you know, you're a celebrity. Uh, Herschel Walker is a celebrity. Uh, he used to be really good at football. He was a great running back. But just because he was good at football doesn't mean he'd be good at other things. And he had this whole thing about saying that he wouldn't want you piloting a plane or whatever. Uh, I know that you have responded to that. But as you think about that attack, like, oh, you don't have the expertise. That's his argument. You don't have the expertise to serve in the U.S. Senate, as opposed to, I guess, in his mind, Raphael Warnock does have the expertise. What's your response to that? Well, we've seen the expertise of the two years. You've seen where we're at right now. So it doesn't seem that he has the expertise to serve in the Senate as well, because we got these high inflation. We got these high crime rate. We got this open border. We got men and women's sports. Well, I've started a business. I've started a, almost a 20 four-year business that become one of the largest minority-owned food service business in the United States of America, where I sign the front of a paycheck. I don't go out and uh, continue to talk the game. I go out and I play the game and I get the job done, whereas, uh, you know, President Obama can come down and talk all he want to talk. He's been wrong about Georgia before, and he's going to be wrong again. Right now, Senator Warnock has proven us to Georgia who he is. He seemed to care more about Joe Biden than he does about the people of Georgia. And you can look at his voting record. And we're not going to talk about what he's done to Georgia because what he's done to Georgia, he's failed Georgia. He's failed the voters, and he's going to continue to fail. Well, I've been a champion for Georgia before, and I'll be a champion again for them. 
Last time you and I spoke here on the show, Herschel, it was before the one and only debate that you had against your opponent. And I think everyone was expecting him to beat you because, look, he's a slick talker. He's a pastor. He's been speaking publicly for his entire adult life. He's the incumbent, the sitting senator. And I happened to be actually in your state when the debate happened and the clip started circulating and people were saying, Herschel just won this debate. Talk about your preparation for that debate. And do you think that moment was a big one for you in your campaign down there? I think that was a big moment for us because, you know, Senator Warnock continued to talk that game. You see, they spent almost $100 million against us already. The taste is virtually tied, so he can't even spend his own money. So you got to quit spending the Georgia people money. Right now, uh, this economy is the way it is because all they've done is raise taxes on people. They continue to spend money we don't have, and they spend, spend, spend. But they don't realize that what you got to do is you got to put something back into the bank. The way you can do that is become in energy independent again. You know, during the debate, he, they, everyone thought he was going to wipe the floor with me. Honestly, with you, anyone that know Herschel Walker knew that there was no way he was going to be able to do that. And I hope I showed everyone that I'm the one ready to step into that seat right now to be the senator for the great state of Georgia. I'm the one that can step into that seat that's going to vote for the right people, vote the right way that Georgia wants you to vote, rather than going alone to get alone. And what I mean by that, I think he just voted just to be popular there in Washington and then vote with the people because if he had voted the right way, he wouldn't have put men in women's sports. He knew men shouldn't be in women's sports. He wouldn't have canceled our energy by voting four times to kill the Keystone Pipeline. So everything he's voted on has been wrong. He's shown over two years that he cannot do the job, and it's time for someone new to get in that seat. You mentioned all the money that's been spent against you. One of the criticisms that we've seen, and we don't have to relitigate all the details, but they came at you with these allegations, now two of them that you had paid in the past for abortions. You have denied this. And in my mind, there's sort of three groups of people in your state when it comes to these allegations. There's people that don't believe you, and we're never going to vote for you anyway. There are people who do believe you and are going to vote for you. And then there are some Georgians who might be skeptical of whether you're telling the truth, they're not sure if they believe you, but they are open to voting for you anyway. What is your message to those people who aren't really sure? My message to those people is I've been very transparent my whole life. I've been very transparent. I wrote a book about my life. Because I've been very open that, you know, I suffer a little bit of mental health, but I knew that I can overcome that by going to get help, that I encourage everyone, if you're going through a problem, you go out and you can get help, and that problem can get taken care of. But right now, they've tried to play that against me, and they've tried to do a lot of things against me. But I believe in redemption. I believe in this America dream that I've had that America dream. But one of the things I say to all those people, you look at what Senator Warnock has done. In two short years, this is what he's done. He's wrecked this economy. He's wrecked this border by not securing the border. He's wrecked putting men and women's sports. He's wrecked everything since he's been into office. And right now, I have been a success of whatever I've done. And, yes, I've been knocked down before, but I've gotten up. And I say I want to get everyone up right now. Senator Warnock want to divide, want to divide because of racism. He's in a church of one of the greatest black leaders ever that used to preach about that it shouldn't be the color of your skin but the content of your character. All he talks about is the color of your skin. And then he tried to go to uh, being a minister when you catch him in a, in a lie. People forget about it. He's the one that was evicting people. And when they find out that, he's not that Matthew 25 that he talks about, that when I was hungry, you fed me. When 
when I was and they had no clothes, you clothed me. But when somebody needed his help, he evicted them. He's not talking about what he tried to do and hiding all his court papers from his divorce. He's not open to the people. I've been very transparent. So that's why I want the people to know I'm going to go out and fight for you like I've always have done. I've scored for Georgia once, and I'll score again for him. <laughs> there we go. And I'm going to talk football here in just a second. But first, since you brought it up, that was a moment in your debate now weeks ago that I thought was very interesting, this this scandal, the housing scandal involving Raphael Warnock and his church. I mean, when you read into the details of what they've done, it is very bad. It's very hypocritical on his part. And it seems like pretty straightforward that he outright lied about what his church and that related business was doing, evicting some of these people in some cases who owed a tiny pittance in rent in the middle of this pandemic, they were serving them eviction notices. He lied about it, it looks like, on the debate stage. Has there been a lot of scrutiny of that issue in your state comparable to some of the stuff that they've come after you with? It seems like that should be an awfully huge story nationally, but especially in Georgia. Well, they haven't come after him that much because, you know, the news media is never going to be my friend. A lot of them is out promoting what a great guy he is. They're not promoting that right now. We're in a mess. After two years, we're in a mess. And I say, I'm not going to worry about that because this seat belongs to the great people of Georgia. That's what I'm fighting for. I'm fighting to get this seat right for the great people of Georgia. So they're going to continue to talk about mine, what's going on with me. But I think the people are starting to wake up. And I think that's the reason the people right now still got me in this fight. And as long as I'm in this fight, I'm going to win it because I'm going to continue to go out and let the people know what I stand for, who I am, what I'm going to fight for, because they know who I am. I'm a guy that's been redeemed in my life. I'm a guy that has fallen down many times, but I've always gotten back up, gotten back up and been that champion. And I'm telling every American we can get up too. With everything going on right now, we can get out of this. We can become energy independent again. We can get out of this. We can create jobs here in the United States. We can get out of this because we can secure that border, and we can get out of this by not putting men and women's sports anymore. And we can continue to be champion for the unborn. We can continue to be champion for our kids. And we can do this, but we can all get it done together. And they seem to want to separate. And I've called Senator Warnock a Marxist. And the reason I called him that is I said, when you want to abolish the court system, you want to abolish the police, you want to uh, get rid of the family unit, that is a Marxist. And those are things he really want to do, but they're not telling anyone that. They continue to mislead and try to mislead people to try to get a vote. But that's not what I'm about. I'm not that politician. I'm, I'm a Christian man. And I say I'm that warrior for God. Herschel Walker, finally, I have to ask you about this huge huge game at Sanford Stadium this weekend. Number three, Georgia, your Bulldogs, hosting the number one team in the country, the Tennessee Volunteers, who just knocked off Bama at home a couple weeks ago. Biggest game in the country all weekend long. The Volunteers look awfully good. Of course, your dogs are the reigning national champions. Are you picking the Bulldogs to win? What are the keys to the game? I am picking the Bulldogs to win. I think the biggest key is we're playing them in Athens, Georgia. I think the fans are going to play a big role. I think Tennessee, they have a great, great team. They're very well coached, but I think the fans got to get the noise up, keep it hard for that offense to hear the snap count, and then it's going to make it tough for them to be able to do anything. But I think the Dawes playing at home is going to give them a little bit of an advantage, and they can get back to that number one spot again. Well, I was at Sanford Stadium a couple weeks ago against uh, Vanderbilt, and 
Tennessee is going to be a lot better than Vanderbilt, but I think that place is going to be a lot crazier than it was for the game I was at. It is going to be deafening. I'll be watching. That's tomorrow, 3.30 kickoff. Huge, huge game down there in the SEC. And I know that you'll be watching very closely, maybe as you're going from one campaign stop to another. The final sprint here before Tuesday, Herschel Walker, Republican nominee for the U.S. Senate down there in Georgia and a legend of Georgia football. Herschel, appreciate it. Thank you. Hey, thank you. And tell everyone to go to teamherschel.com and you can do or not, make phone calls, contribute to the campaign. Let's win this seat bike for the great people of Georgia. And with that, we will step aside and take a quick break. It's the Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Back on the Guy Benson Show. New jobs report out today. So the October jobs report was mixed. In some ways, it was good. Payrolls grew 261,000 jobs overall in the month, which is better than expected. The unemployment rate, though, went up and workforce participation contracted a little bit. So on balance, not bad. Some some good indicators in there, but also signs still on wages and other things of a long, rocky road ahead. And it's something that we'll keep an eye on. Although it's interesting, over at MSNBC, Joy Reid, who's one of their anchors who once claimed that all the homophobic stuff that she wrote on her blog back in the day had been like retroactively written by someone else because she got hacked or something like that. There's a total lie. Anyway, there's no accountability for that. She's never apologized for that. She just lied about it. Anyway, she's got a show over at MSNBC, and she has a theory on why inflation is such a big issue in the election in Cut 32. The only people I ever heard hear use the word inflation are journalists um, and economists, right? So that is not part of the normal lexicon of the way people talk. So it's interesting that Republicans are doing something they don't normally do, right? Which is not use the, com- the common tongue, right? Not use just common English to sort of use do on their campaigns like they're doing with crime. What? Inflation is not part of the lexicon. Yeah, people normally don't talk about inflation because normally there's not rampant inflation. People don't talk about inflation typically unless, I don't know, their groceries cost 13% more than they did a year ago. Everyone's talking about inflation. I guess she's maybe making the point that it's like the cost of things. Republicans are talking plenty about that, too. I just find this so strange. We had the people on the left, including the White House, trying to redefine recession not long ago. Remember that fun little adventure we all had where the traditional definition that we'd all used, you know, forever. Oh, so we had to second look at that. Really, let's let's parse this very carefully. It was a problem for the Democrats. And now Joy Reid's out there scratching her head. Why, why are these people using this word inflation all of a sudden so much? That's just a, a strange thing that journalists and economists generally talk about. It's like when Ron Klain called it a high-class problem. People understand exactly what inflation means. They're very upset about it. It is hurting their families, and that's a big part of the reason why Democrats are in trouble. I don't know if this was a thought that she had on her own or if someone wrote it in the teleprompter. Maybe the teleprompter was hacked. She's always the victim of mysterious hacks, after all, according to her. It's just a weird point to make, but not as weird as this one. Also on MSNBC, they're just having a normal one over there. Michael Beschloss, once a respected historian, 
went on, I think it was Chris Hayes' show, so over on MSNBC, and yeah, he just had a few lighthearted thoughts about the upcoming midterm elections, cut 31. A historian 50 years from now, if historians are allowed to write in this country, and if there are still free publishing houses and a free press, which, which I'm not certain of, but if that is true, a historian will say what was at stake tonight and this week was the fact whether we will be a democracy in the future, whether our children will be arrested and conceivably killed. We're on the edge of a brutal authoritarian system, and it could be a week away. Okay. It is amazing seeing some of these guys, Beschloss, Meacham, Larry Sabato on the political side, just like absolutely losing their minds in recent years and just advertising it for the world to see. Like, hi, I'm a psycho partisan not to be taken seriously. He wonders if 50 years from now we'll still have a free country where historians are allowed to exist. And if that's true... We could be a week away, he said, one week away from whether our children will be arrested and conceivably killed. (laughs) What? Like, sir, come on. We're a week away. I I just would love, I don't think there was much pushback on this, but I would love to tease it out a little bit here. So you're telling me that if Mehmet Oz, Adam Laxalt, win some Senate seats, and the House of Representatives changes hands by 20, 30 votes, Joe Biden will still be president. He'll still have the wheels on the bus vice president in place, presumably. But you'll have Mitch McConnell as the majority leader and Kevin McCarthy as the speaker. If those things happen, we are a week away from Children getting rounded up, arrested, imprisoned, and perhaps executed? What the hell is this guy talking about? Absolute hysteria. I mean, to even call that fear-mongering, that doesn't quite capture it. And if we're so worried about political rhetoric causing political violence. We'll talk more about that next hour. Does this not qualify? Going on national television saying if the Republicans win, they're going to round up your kids and kill them? Could that foment some violence? Oh, or do the rules only flow in one direction? You know the answer, so do I. Whew. MSNBC man. Take a breath. Another hour coming up. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Kai Benson Show. A new hour here on the Guy Benson Show underway from New York City. Happy Friday. Thanks for listening. GuyBensonShow.com, our website, podcast free every day on demand. That's also the weekend with Bonus Benson. Lots of TV this weekend, tomorrow and Sunday on Fox News. Catch me all over the place, and then I'll be part of the election coverage coming up next week as well. We'll fill you in on all of that. Fox News alert. Good day on Wall Street. I think overall people were encouraged by elements of the uh, jobs report. 
The Dow finishing up 401 points, erasing the losses from yesterday and then some, closing out at 32,403 for the week. Still to come here on today's show, a lot, quite frankly. Later this hour, Joe O'Day from Colorado running for Senate. What's happening out there? Is that now a toss-up race, according to one prognosticator? We'll ask him about that. Robert Cahaley from Trafalgar, that pollster, very interesting guy, very interesting operation. We'll get his bottom line ahead of Tuesday in our next hour, our final hour. And also Brian Kemp, the governor of Georgia, will be here. We had Herschel last hour, Kemp in the next hour, pretty Georgia-centric here on the program today. But we get to our next guest right now, and you know her quite well. Shannon Bream, chief legal correspondent here at Fox News, anchor of Fox News Sunday. Check your local listings. She's got the Live in the Bream podcast. She's a best-selling author. She'll be a big part of the election coverage on Tuesday as well on Fox News Channel. Shannon, great to have you back. Happy Friday. Always my treat. Well, we're happy to have you here. I want to start actually with your court-watching legal hat. There was a big case argued before the Supreme Court earlier this week on the issue of affirmative action, racial preferences and racial considerations when it comes to college admissions. Tell us about this case. And I saw a lot of buzz about the oral argument in terms of where things seem to be pointed. What can you tell us? Yeah, so you've got a public school in the University of North Carolina. You've got a private school, Harvard University, excuse me, Harvard College. And they both are saying, listen, yes, of the multiple factors we use in looking at applications, we do include race. Now, the current precedent is you can't have quotas, you can't have numbers like 10% of the class is this or 15% of the class is that or a certain number of slots. But you can use uh, the issue of race in a holistic way if it's narrowly tailored. The schools say that's what they're doing. They're not discriminating. But this case comes basically from a group of plaintiffs, Asian-American students who say we're actually being discriminated against because black and Hispanic students are getting more preference in the process. Regardless of what our test scores are, we think we're being crowded out because race is being used. They argue race shouldn't be used at all, including their race as Asian-Americans. So arguments were very heated. They went on for hours and hours. Um, So there's a lot of meat there. But one of the things that struck me is that Justice Thomas, who has clearly been against affirmative action publicly and privately for as long as anyone can remember, he repeatedly asked a couple of questions. What is diversity? How do you define that? There were questions, well, what about viewpoint diversity? Um, You know, how, how do you define that? And he also kept pressing, what is the educational benefit? Because you talk about how it, it benefits the classroom to have racial diversity. What is the measured educational benefit of that? And those were kind of those questions that sort of stumped the uh, advocates for these policies that weren't able to point him to a clear answer that at least seemed to satisfy him. There was also an exchange that I read about with Justice Alito, who asked a question about the importance of race. And the advocates on the other side were trying to argue, oh, it's really not that important. He's like, okay, so it's not that important, then it really wouldn't be a problem if we got rid of that consideration. Like, oh, well, no, 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 no. That seems to be a big flaw, at least in my mind, in their whole argument. He also said, okay, where do you measure that? Is it a parent? Is it a grandparent? Is it a single great-grandparent? I mean, at what point do you say 
this is enough of a factor that it's, it's affected the way this person's life and world has been affected in a way that we should consider on the um, application process. So, yeah, there was a little back and forth of um, some fact-finding on about, I think in some one of the schools, there were like 1.2% of the cases had been impacted, the admissions decisions, with the basis of race. So I think that's why he fired back then. Okay, if it's only that much, then why do you need to keep using it? If you've kind of reached a place that you think the classes are, mm-hmm. you know, a good reflection of society as a whole, and that was the worry from Justice Kagan. She said, you know, if we don't make sure that our schools, her argument is, reflect more broadly the, um, the population here in the U.S., then and, you know, places like business and law and the military may not have that um, direct correlation to what we see in society. And we want to make sure that people see themselves represented everywhere. One thing that is interesting just of note here, if you look at public polling now for years, it's overwhelming. The American people across party and across race, they do not like the idea of race being used in college admissions at all. And it's not even close. It is a lopsided polling result over and over again. I cite Pew data on this a lot. It's not close. And I just want to underscore that because I know a lot of people who talk about the importance of the court's legitimacy reflecting public opinion. Well, if the court decides that racial discrimination is not okay, which is my position, racial discrimination is not okay, if that's what this court decides – There'll be a lot of folks who have in the past screamed about how the court needs to take into consideration public opinion who will not really hold that standard on this case because they're on the wrong side of public opinion on it. I think that's just worth putting out there. I'm, I'm just noting that for the record. Shannon, before we move on from this Supreme Court case, were there enough tea leaves in the oral, argu- in the oral arguments, which I know is always a tricky business to make any strong predictions, but in terms of where this court might break down on these cases. Oh, goodness. Um, They have done this issue multiple times in the 15 years I've been covering the court, and each time there seems to be sort of a tighter rein on the usage of race and the way that it can be used. It seems like they're moving in that direction, that you've got at least five or six who would say, okay, it's time to stop allowing race to be used as an entering factor. But nobody seems clear on how you'd actually do that. Listen, if it's just checking a box, that's one thing. But some people are going to write an essay that tells you a lot about them as an immigrant or a certain background that they have or how race has impacted their family or their educational expectations and experience. So I don't know how you completely divorce it from the admissions process, but it seems there's a majority of the court, at least at first blush, from the arguments that wants to find a way to rein that in. Shannon, tell us about Tuesday night and what your task is going to be on Fox News Channel as we cover these elections. You know, I love that I get to play with the data because we've got the Fox News voter analysis where we are tracking and talking to voters, likely voters or people who have voted, about the issues that matter to them. What swayed their vote? Is an endorsement by President Trump a plus or a minus? Do you care about the economy or crime or abortion? And state after state, and we can look across the country at how that's motivating people to get out and vote. So it's really fun to look at that data now. And as we get to election night, um, we'll be able to break it out a little bit more in a detailed way that helps people understand what's driving voters and may give us some early clues as to how these states may shape up. It's kind of like our version of exit polling, right? It is. It's our fancy, elevated version of we're not calling them exit polls. Okay, very good. Uh, Let's talk about this week's edition of Fox News Sunday, where people can check their local listings on their local Fox station in the morning, and then it replays on Fox News Channel later in the day. 
I see that you've got a couple interesting guests, including Kevin Stitt, who's in a, a tough fight in Oklahoma to keep that job as the governor of Oklahoma. Also, Jim Clyburn, who is the House Majority Whip under Speaker Pelosi. I would imagine that, and I'm not telling you how to do your job, but he said something very interesting recently on MSNBC that I don't think has gotten quite enough attention nationally. He basically just admitted, oh, yeah, when we all voted for the uh, rescue plan, $2 trillion, all of us knew that that was going to fuel inflation. Of course it was going to fuel inflation. It seemed like a pretty significant acknowledgement on his part, almost unsolicited. Uh, it got very little pickup. Just throwing that out there, Shannon, since you've got him on the show. Yeah, and we asked another Democrat about that on our show not long ago because he had said it. And so I'm like, are you among those? Are there other Democrats who thought that that would be a good idea? Um, Henry Cuellar was on with us a week or two back. And so the, it's out there. And, and Congressman Clyburn's not the only one who said it. He also said to Fox News Digital um, that he is warning that he sees right now what's happening in this country is like 1930s Germany, that a duly elected or democratically elected chancellor um, moved the country towards a very terrible period in history. Now, any time that you make um, any kind of comparison, use anything that references the Nazi um, Holocaust nightmare, that whole thing, you get pushback. And already people today are saying today, he makes comments about Nazism and how he sees it reflected in some elements of today's um, right wing. And it really um, does not sit well with people. You always are taking a chance when you use something that inflammatory. And already people are speaking out and saying that denigrates or devalues the suffering of millions of people who were killed. Well, and it's just so over the top. It's so inappropriate. It's so preposterous. I was playing some words uh, from, what was it, last hour, from a historian who went on MSNBC and was also sort of invoking the possibility of genocide if the Republicans win, <laughs> you know, in next week. It's nuts, uh, in my opinion. Shannon, very quickly, 30 seconds, what else do you have on tap this Sunday on Fox News Sunday? Amazing panel of Juan Williams, Brett, uh, Brit. Hume, Dana Perino, and then you will later in the show see Brett and Martha as well to explain exactly how it's all going to go down on Tuesday, plus pollsters to tell us what you can and can't believe in the numbers as we come down to the wire. Okay, so that's a lot to pack in in one hour on Sunday morning. That's Fox News Sunday, anchored by our friend and colleague Shannon Bream, who's also the chief legal correspondent, as you could tell from this conversation that we just had here Mm -hmm. at Fox News. Shannon, have a great show on Monday, and we'll be seeing you working together on the air on Tuesday night for the elections. See you then, my friend. Really appreciate it. That's Shannon Bream. On The Guy Benson Show, a lot more to get to still this hour and next. Don't go anywhere. Stay tuned. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome back to the show. Well, yesterday we told you about a few stories that you might not have heard elsewhere, certainly not in the mainstream press, like the Republican nominee for Senate in New Hampshire, Don Bulldog, getting attacked on his way into the debate this week by what appeared to be a lefty activist. Sort of like came past the partition and took a swing at the guy. There was also the story of a man being arrested in Illinois for making explicit and very disturbing death threats against the Republican nominee for governor there. Wanted to skin him alive, he said, citing alleged Republican racism and other things about abortion. 
You've heard so much about Paul Pelosi and that attack, and we continue to learn more details. I saw earlier today NBC had a report about what happened at the Pelosi residence and the sequence of events that was awfully strange again. And then it started to make the rounds. Then NBC took it down from all their platforms and retracted the report. So that's a little strange again. But Pelosi's out of the hospital, so that's good. We've been wishing him a speedy recovery. And as I've said, if this is political violence, it should be easily and immediately and harshly condemned by everyone and then harshly punished by the criminal justice system, which unfortunately is not the case so often, especially in that neck of the woods, San Francisco, when it comes to crime and what people get away with or at least are released back onto the streets after doing. There's a few more examples of this that we've just learned about in the last 24 hours. For example, the chairperson of the Wayne County Republican Party in Michigan says that at a Tudor Dixon rally, Tudor Dixon running for governor out there, over the weekend, she was bitten by a protester. And she has like teeth marks on her body from the bite. And a local news station looked into it. Detroit police are investigating what happened. And what the local news has found, according to this report, is that, quote, the alleged attacker is a local school teacher. Okay. And then... There's this story from North Carolina, which just broke last night. It happened last month, but now it's gone public. It involves threats and an apparent very serious act of violence targeting a Republican congressional candidate in North Carolina and his family. His name is Pat Harrigan. He's a Republican running for Congress down in the Tar Heel state. He's a former Green Beret. And he told his story on Fox and Friends earlier, Cut 41. This all started at the very beginning of this campaign when my opponent started to lie about me. And I'm not talking about just normal lies. I'm talking about vile and nasty lies. I'm in the firearms industry. One of these lies is that I profit from the deaths of children. Truly reprehensible. And this has led to a cascade of consequences for me and my family where I've received a very credible death threat. Uh, This was followed up by my opponent utilizing very poor judgment to actually shoot an ad out in front of one of my homes and display that home for all to see in the world. I mean, in the era of Steve Scalise and Brett Kavanaugh and now Paul Pelosi, this is just unbelievable to me. And he also used pictures of my family in a complaint uh, that that he filed over the course of this campaign. And then two weeks ago, my parents are watching TV at 11 o'clock at night, just sitting in their living room, and a bullet cracks through their home only 20 feet away from where my kids were sleeping that night. This, This is politics at its worst. Have you heard about that almost anywhere? Serious death threats based on, it would appear, lies coming from Democrats about a Republican candidate down in North Carolina. A gunshot, a bullet fired at the home of his parents where the kids were staying that night. I saw one report that at some events he's been wearing a bulletproof vest. That's how serious the threat has been. Now, Do we know for a fact that all of these things that happened, the bite in Michigan, what's happening in North Carolina, that it is all a direct result of Democratic rhetoric? No. 
And if we did know that it was inspired by Democratic rhetoric, would that mean that they collectively as a party are responsible for this violence? No. But if the partisan breakdown, if the partisan affiliations and dynamics were the opposite, would the Democrats and their friends in the media hesitate to answer yes on either of those questions? I think it's so obvious. If we wanted to do what they do, if we wanted to play by their rules and adhere to their standards, we would give all these examples, very recent examples of political violence, including Republican canvassers and volunteers and conservatives getting attacked, shot, beaten, sent to the hospital. We would say all of it is because of the Democrats' rhetoric, what they're saying, and demand that they stop campaigning and demand a constant national conversation about the danger of what the Democrats are saying and how they're fomenting violence in the country. That is their standard. We're not going to do that because it's unfair, it's unjust. But I'm just pointing out what they do to the political right, and by they I particularly mean the news media, it goes one direction, the rules do not apply to the other side, which is why when we go and try to find a bunch of hysterical, breathless coverage of this very dramatic story about a bullet getting shot at this Republican candidate's house, at his parents' house in North Carolina. In fact, here's the audio. We have a montage. We have a montage that we put together of all the mainstream clips talking all about it for hours on end this morning. Let's listen. Oh, the montage doesn't exist. The coverage doesn't exist. What a shock. I wonder why. It's such a mystery. The Guy Benson Show returns after this break. Don't go anywhere. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Thank you for listening on this Friday. It's the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com. Free podcast every day on demand. Saw this headline from Politico. National Teachers Union chiefs hitting the campaign trail with former President Barack Obama and First Lady Jill Biden to support Democratic tickets in Arizona, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. Notice who's not part of that little club. The sitting president. The people mentioned are Obama, Dr. Jill Biden, and these teachers union bosses. Just a little reminder. One of the percolating, underlying, background noise issues in this campaign has to be COVID, has to be school closures, has to be education. The teachers' union bosses use their influence and their money to literally alter official science for their political reasons. It was politicized. It was selfish. It was anti-science, anti-child. And what they are trying to do is get their allies elected and reelected as an opposite to accountability. They want more reinforcements in Washington, D.C. to make sure there is no accountability for what they did brazenly right before our eyes. And we're seeing the repercussions of it, the consequences every day among millions of kids. And here are these union bosses, the teachers union bosses, openly campaigning in Arizona, Michigan, Pennsylvania for their party. They want a rubber stamp. They want an endorsement of what they inflicted on the country. And they're saying it 
very openly. It's not a mystery. We know what they stood for. We know what they stand for. We know what they did. And it's up to parents to have a say at the ballot box about that, if they so choose. Because obviously, the message did not land strongly enough in Virginia or New Jersey. It wasn't enough. So I just want to make you aware of that. One of the states that I mentioned, Pennsylvania, of course, big Senate race there. John Fetterman is all in for the teachers' union. He'll just do whatever the unions tell him in Washington, D.C. He's very anti-school choice. Having gone to Harvard, I think, for graduate school on his parents' dime, he's sending his own kids to an elite, very expensive private school in Pennsylvania, likely also paid for by his parents because they've paid for everything. He's a rich kid who dresses like a working-class person or his interpretation of a working-class person with the hoodie and the tats and all that. But he also doesn't work. He doesn't like to work. He never has. Even when he finally got a somewhat important job, lieutenant governor, with a handful of responsibilities, he did almost none of them. The one responsibility John Fetterman took seriously was showing up and voting on the parole board, and overwhelmingly he did it as an outlier to release dangerous criminals. Because he thinks that life without parole, lifetime sentences should be gone. He thinks that a third of prisoners in Pennsylvania should be released. And the insane cashless bail nightmare that's playing out in a lot of these places around the country, guess who's a fan of that? John Fetterman. Here's a flashback from 2018 in his own words, cut 33. We want to get rid of cash bail where it's appropriate so we don't criminalize poverty. We don't criminalize race. We don't like all these things that are wrong with our criminal justice system right now. He has endorsed and praised Larry Krasner, the catastrophically bad district attorney in Philadelphia. And we've seen the results of those policies there. That is how Fetterman believes the criminal justice system ought to operate. He's been very open about it, although coming down the stretch here when it's hurting him, his campaign has sort of denied it and lied about it. The record is what it is. So the number one reason, as I keep saying about John Fetterman, to defeat him in this race is his record and his beliefs. His record is extraordinarily unimpressive. And that, I think, is being very polite. I think he is a hypocritical deadbeat in reality. As I was just saying a moment ago, he's anti-school choice, but his kids get the benefit of an expensive private education from his parents, but he doesn't want that opportunity for other families who don't have rich parents. And he wants to keep those kids in the government-run schools as a monopoly, But he was also delinquent on his own local taxes to support those schools over and over again. It's just amazing what this guy has done in his life and his career and is on the doorstep of a Senate seat. He is a radical left winger. He's lying about his position on energy. He's lying about his position on crime. And I'm not just asserting that. It's on the record. He is way out there on the left. He would be in the Bernie Warren wing of the party from Pennsylvania. Those are the big reasons to oppose him. Then there's also the whole question of whether or not he is fit to serve at all physically. I think ideologically, based on his resume, based on his background, based on his ideas, he is unfit and dangerous. 
Although not to Oprah. I don't know if you saw this. Oprah has endorsed him. And everyone's going, ooh, well, Dr. Oz got famous on Oprah, and Oprah's against Oz. Oprah's for Fetterman. Oprah is a billionaire leftist. You look at her endorsements across the country, every leftist running, she's for. Of course she endorsed John Fetterman. She's too rich for any of this to matter to her, really. And she just wants fellow ideological leftists in there. Right? So th- there's no surprise there. That's not like a big whoa moment. And Oz, by the way, was gracious about it. I love Oprah, respect Oprah. We have a disagreement on politics, and that's the right way to play it, I think, for him. But on The View today, John Fetterman was the guest remotely, and it was amazing. The doctors at The View, at the table, apparently, gave him a clean bill of health before they started the interview, just to say it's not even an issue. Listen to one of the doctors explain why, and by doctors I mean co-hosts without doctorates, of course. Cut 34. You released the, an updated letter from your doctor, um, and it's clear your post-stroke struggles are not cognitive and would not hinder you as a senator. So I'm going to just go ahead and move on and treat you like regular candidate. No, we're going to move on and treat you like a regular candidate. That's obviously something that you have to say when something is super regular. It's clear your post-stroke struggles are not cognitive and would not hinder you as a senator. Oh, great. I'm sure Dr. Behar and Dr. Hoopy agree. I mean... It's clear to them, maybe not as clear to people who were at a speech that Fetterman gave just recently the other night, I think talking about football, Cup 35. I think every, everyone that ever plays all, uh, football in, in high school was, you know, at a kind of like a trade-out kind of uh, football camp. And uh, was it, was it, there wasn't any interest to have a couple right here, you know. Mm-hmm. He's going to treat everyone like, let's all move on and treat him like a regular candidate. All right, thank you, doctor. It's his ideas that are even more concerning than that. The Guy Benson Show continues after this. Joe O'Day in Colorado, Senate candidate. He says it's a toss-up race. Real Clear Politics now agrees. That's next. Guy Benson will be right back. We continue now on The Guy Benson Show with Joe O'Day, businessman running for U.S. Senate out in Colorado, beautiful state. And, Joe, welcome back to the show. Guy, thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Love being with uh, all of these independent thinkers. Well, we appreciate you being here as well. Thanks for spending some time with us here on this Friday. I know that it's getting down to real crunch time for you and your campaign. I want to talk about the debate that you had with Senator Bennett, Michael Bennett, the Democrat in that state that you're trying to beat. And we spoke most recently before that debate. There were a few moments that got some attention, at least within political circles, and I would imagine resonated at least somewhat in Colorado. At one point, it sounded very much and looked like Senator Bennett was rattled and upset with your criticisms of his lack of effectiveness as a senator. In Cut 38, here's part of that. Why do you keep... I, tell me what that means to you. Well, it just goes to your effectiveness. You're no, but you've been... What you, you're uh, ineffective. Let's hear an you, what, I, I gave you the answer. You're ineffective. Okay, Look, you're a liar, lost Joe. In, you're a liar, I, Joe. Yeah. You're a liar, Joe. That's not true. You're lying I'm about I'm telling the, the truth. 
I'm telling the truth. I'm, you didn't get Space Command. You're not telling You've the let truth. BLM leave Grand Junction. That's not true, Joe. You helped your president with a war on energy. That's which not is, true, Joe. Yes, it is. That's it's all true. true. You stood right by him 98% of the time. I think Joe, we've... I think we've Joe, you all right, so he is calling you a liar for calling him ineffective. Let's fact check this. What's the reality? Well, the reality is there was nothing that I said there that wasn't true. He's gotten one standalone bill passed in the 13 years he's been there. That's on record. He jumped all over the war on energy. That's on record. His president, the one that killed the XL pipeline, day one they were in office, he stood by and watched. He watched them take Space Command away from Colorado Springs, hasn't used his seat to get anything changed. All he had to do was hold up one bill, hold up one appointment and say, you know, President Biden, I want Space Command for Colorado. I'm not going to vote with you till you do it. And he's done nothing to help keep the Bureau of Land Management headquarters here in Grand Junction. The guy is ineffective. I called it like I saw it, and he just came unhinged. He had nothing to say but start to call me a liar. It's an unbelievable moment. I felt pretty good about it, to be honest with you, Guy, because I just called, called it what it was. Yeah, I mean, and you can look at his record. Virtually no one knows the guy. He doesn't do much of anything. He's a rubber stamp who goes along with what the leadership tells him, Biden and Schumer. And there, I cannot think, as someone who follows politics closely, of any major example on something meaningful where he stood up to his own party or worked in a very important way across party lines to do something controversial on the other side of things. He's just sort of there as a partisan Democrat, a very reliable vote. That's your point. He got very angry about it and made it personal, right? You were criticizing his record. He criticized your character. Yeah, you know, I think the Colorado voters see right through it. I can tell you he's living in the vacuum of Washington, D.C., and he thinks that's acceptable. If he was out here in the real world running a business and he had that as his track record, he'd be fired. And that's exactly what we're going to do to him on November 8th, this next Tuesday. Working Americans have had enough of his economy. They've had enough of the price of gas being through the roof. They've had enough of this record crime that Joe Biden with the blessing of Michael Bennett has caused, and they're ready for a change. We got great momentum behind this campaign. Working Americans are fed up. You also had an opportunity to ask a direct question of Senator Bennett. You asked it about inflation and all the spending that, of course, he's voted for. There's nothing that has been spent under this administration that he hasn't supported. He's just yes, yes, yes all the time. Here's that exchange in Cut 39. We've seen $5 trillion go into the market here in the last two years. And some Democrats have said they regret all of this spending. Do you regret this spending? Uh, I regret the fact that we're facing the inflation that we're facing because the economy recovered at once globally. And we're having to deal with the effects of that because of the broken supply chains all over the world and because of the cost of energy that we're having to deal with. You know, Joe, these we're not... You haven't been talking about it so much. Well, I asked a question. Do you regret the spending? And my answer to your question is I regret the inflation that people are facing. That your spending costs. Because of the broken supply chains globally and because of the energy that we're facing. So your response, Joe, to that answer from the senator, I mean, he kind of wanted to have it both ways there and didn't want to own the spending. Reading between the lines, it sounds like 
He doesn't regret the spending at all, but he does regret some of the political pain caused by the pain that he has inflicted through those votes. Well, he folded. You saw that was political speak. That's that's how they talk in Washington when they don't want to give you the yes or no answer. He just talked around the issue. He 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 doesn't know how to respond to it because I just called him on what he did. That's all I've done. I've been running this campaign since a year ago, October, and all we've been doing is telling the facts that he has caused in Washington, D.C. We talk about his record. We talk about what he's done and hasn't done. Uh, in the meantime, they spent $35 million on TV telling lies about myself, my family, and my business. And I'm focused on what's important for working Americans here. That's the campaign we're running because working Americans need a voice, middle class, small business owners, single families, uh, you know, those people that are working two jobs to try and make ends meet because of these policies put in place by Michael Bennett and Joe Biden. Joe O'Day, I saw that Real Clear Politics has shifted your race into the toss-up category. Most of the other prognosticators still have it as a lean Democratic race. I've been watching some of the early votes, or I guess it's all mail-in balloting, so the return rates. And while the return rates, and it's it's hard to draw a perfect line from point A to point B, it's much messier than that, so I think it's important just to put that caveat out there, but the return rates are better than they were a couple of years ago in 2020 for Republicans. I don't know if they are better enough compared to what they would need to be, given how dominant Joe Biden's win was in Colorado over Donald Trump. Do you believe your race truly is a toss-up? And am I getting something wrong as I'm looking at some of those numbers? What's the path to victory? Uh, you're dead on. This is this is a toss-up race. It's going to be close. I got to tell you, though, my message of working Americans and what's important to us here in Colorado is resonating. We built a huge coalition. So it's not only just good, uh, strong Republicans, Trump supporters. It's also independents that are just fed up right now. And we got a bunch of disgruntled Democrats that are going to cross party lines, vote for Joe O'Day because they're ready for a change here in Colorado on Tuesday. We're going to win. We're going to shock the whole nation when Colorado elects his first Republican senator in six, seven years. So it's going to be a great day. And it sounds like the theory of the case would be, if you can pull that off, the DRI numbers on the ballots coming back are not a perfect predictor of how those people actually vote. You'd imagine that you'd get almost all of the Republicans in your camp. You're saying you might be able to peel off some disgruntled Democrats from that D group. And then, crucially, independents you guys would really need to have those break pretty heavily for you. And you're at least, for now, standing confident that that's going to happen. Uh, the, the, I've been all across the state. And when you get into the suburbs of, of Denver, uh, the independents are with us. Uh, they're breaking my way, 55-45 already. And not to mention the Latino community here in Colorado is huge. It's 23% of the vote. My wife is a second-generation uh, from Mexico, and uh, 80% of my employees are, are, are Latino, Hispanic. And I'm telling you right now, they're as fed up with this economy, with the price of gas, and the record crime we're seeing here in, in Colorado as anyone else. They're breaking our way. We're going we're gonna to carry the Latino vote here in Colorado. It'll be enough to get us across the finish line. We'll be a senator on, on Tuesday. Well, we will be watching very closely and rooting for that outcome, certainly. And that would be an upset. You said it would shock the world. It certainly would. And we shall see Joe O'Day out there in Colorado. Thank you so much for your time. Good luck. 
Guy, thanks a lot. I, I can still use some resources. JoeOdea.com. That's J-O-E-O-D-E-A.com. We're going to get across the finish line on, on Tuesday. Taking a break. Coming back. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show coming up next. Robert Kahaley from the Trafalgar Group, one of these pollsters who's predicting a red wave. We will get his final thoughts on this program before the election. Straight ahead. clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Happy Friday, happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast is free every single day on demand, including bonus Benson on the weekends. No charge to you. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show on Twitter and Instagram. This hour is sponsored by our friends at The Finish Long Drink. Delicious, refreshing, alcoholic. So 21 plus only. Always drink responsibly. Check out where they're sold near you, thelongdrink.com. Joining us now is Robert Cahaley, chief pollster at the Trafalgar Group. We had him last week, and we want to do one more check-in with him before the election. Robert, great to have you back. Oh, it is so great to be here. All right, let's talk through some of your latest numbers. You were promising when we had you on a week ago that Trafalgar, your your firm, was going to be putting out new numbers every single day until the election Let's just go through what you have found in the days since then, and then maybe give us a hint or some info on what is still to come. Well, no problem. We haven't missed a day yet. Uh, we've had at least one poll every single day. Um, so you want to just you want to run through the states because my list might be bigger than yours. <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, I'm just I'm scrolling back just a couple of days here through some of your polling. Obviously, let's just start with the New York governor's race. You and I talked about it last time. I've seen numbers anywhere from Kathy Hochul leading by eight to Lee Zeldin ahead by a fraction of a point in your poll. What's your sense there? I really think uh, what we have found, and we, this, we, we're probably the only group that's polled this thing three times and this far apart. Uh, we were the ones who kind of brought it brought it over attention. We brought the attention to this race because it reminded me so much of New Jersey because you had an incumbent that was under 50 and circumstances bad. And you just, in the end, you don't see people breaking toward that incumbent. So started watching this thing. And, and what we've seen is it continued to get tighter. Um, mainstream media said we were crazy from suggesting it was tight at all. And, you know, now they're admitting maybe it's single digits and maybe it's within five, depending upon the poll you look at. But what we saw is a couple of things. One, crime is the number one issue. It's the only state in America where crime outranks the economy, outranks inflation. Two, the last two times before the most recent time, we kept hearing Cuomo. People would say, well, Cuomo did this, Cuomo did that, Cuomo, Cuomo, Cuomo. And I'm like, why do people keep talking about Cuomo? And what I've come to believe is that Cuomo in New York is kind of like Kennedy in Massachusetts. There's one perception the country has, and then there's kind of an affection that the people from the home state have that are not affected necessarily by their actions. And so 
what I wanted to do is see, I had this thought, maybe this Cuomo organization that we know has been in place since the 80s, maybe they're not so engaged for Kathy Hochul. So this last poll, in addition to asking the ballot test, we said, who did a better job as governor, Cuomo or Hochul? Cuomo wins 60-40. Now, I know there are Republicans on the Cuomo side there, so that you can dismiss that. But the second question was more important. If your choice today was Zeldin or Cuomo, how would you vote? Zeldin loses Cuomo 55-45. Now, what that tells me is people who like Cuomo, think he got a raw deal, maybe part of his machine, are part of the Zeldin group. I mean, they, they, they are literally part of the coalition that is helping Zeldin. Uh, and not like there's some kind of a deal. I just think they don't like her, and he's an alternative. But there's no question in my mind that this organization exists in every county. I've heard about it for years. I mean, these are the kind of people that turn the votes out, that go make sure everybody gets their rides. I don't know that that Cuomo organization is being delivered for her. And in fact, they might be going more than just sitting it out but they might be working against her. But I think Zeldin, for these reasons, has an excellent chance. She can talk the talk, but she hasn't done anything about crime. She literally had the abilities. He wiped her out in the debate. She could have removed some of those district attorneys with a swipe of a pen, and she didn't do it. She could suspend the cashless bail. People know it. And, you know, New York is not Manhattan. And all Zeldin has to do is get about 30% of the vote in, in the whole city, and he can, and he, that's all it takes. Well, yeah, I mean, this is an excellent chance. Thirty to thirty-five is what he told us here, and that's possible. I wouldn't say it's probable, but it's possible. I'm not even sure that Hochul is good at talking the talk. She has not been a good candidate. Totally uninspiring. Nope. Has really screwed up a couple of different times. However, yes, I would say the trajectory has been good for Zeldin, and a lot of that momentum, and sometimes that carries over. One difference between New York this year and New Jersey last year is that Jersey was like a total sleeper. No one saw it coming, which is not the same in New York. Everyone is seeing what's happening, which is why the Democrats are parachuting in big names and plunging a bunch of money into New York. You've sort of given them a heads up, not you specifically, although Trafalgar was sort of on the cutting edge here, but the polling has given them a heads up that things might be slipping away. Maybe those reinforcements at the 11th hour could come in and save her. It's absolutely possible. But I'll tell you one thing that is very interesting to me, and that is because of all the attention this thing has gotten, there's also been a lot of Republican money that's come into the state. And at the same time, we know for a fact, you know, you've heard all these guys, you know, the view and all the stuff, and they're complaining about all the the polls seem to be dominated by right-leaning polling groups. Well, we know for a fact that two of the major networks have been in the field in New York in the last two weeks and haven't published anything. And there's a reason for that. And there's a reason what's happening around the country and people talking about the polling, well, it seems to be skewed because what is happening is these mainstream pollsters, these network groups that have you know, done the pump and dump and told everybody how, how great the Democrats are doing and created an artificial bubble that wasn't there, now are faced with a choice. They got three choices. One, put out a real poll that gives the Republicans even more momentum to put out another poll that's skewed that makes them look stupid on election day, or sit out the last couple of weeks thinking that their bad polls will be so far down in the numbers that nobody will remember what they said. A lot of them are choosing option Wait, so you C think they there. are withholding their numbers? I'm certain of it. Wow, that's very interesting. 
All right, let's- Think about it. When's the last time you saw the big networks not put out polls in every one of the major races the last week of an election? And you're saying that you know for a fact that in some of these places they've been in the field and they're just not putting the numbers out? Maybe we'll see them in the next couple days. Maybe. I mean, we are definitely seeing, Robert, to your point, though, this narrative, and we asked Tom Bevan about it from Real Clear Politics the other day, and I would be curious to get your response before we go back to talking about specific states and specific races. Some people are saying, particularly attacking RCP, saying, well, they're using polls like yours and insider advantage and some of these, you know, Remington, some of these other Republican-aligned pollsters, which are painting a much rosier picture for the Republicans than some of the other polling is. So you have kind of this bimodal situation. We've got clusters of polls that are like decent for the Democrats or maybe at least not that bad for the Democrats. And then another cluster of polling, typically with Trafalgar leading the way, that looks a lot worse off for Democrats. And a lot of folks want to discount that cluster, your cluster. What do you make of this argument? Some of it's academic because we'll know soon enough. But as you look at the data and you look at the competition, what do you think? Well, what I think is this. First of all, we're not new to this. I mean, this is our third third cycle um, being in, in all the averages, including 538. I mean, they, they you know routinely criticize us, but use our numbers. So what I would tell you is you cannot blame us for being in the arena, for putting our reputations on the line and facing the consequences of getting it wrong. I mean, the problem is their side, the, the mainstream media side and some of the left-leaning universities are the ones that have left the arena. So if you want to be mad, be mad at the cowards who won't take a stand. Don't be mad at the people who have the courage to actually get out there and face face the music. Okay, fair enough. And the numbers will be what the numbers actually are. And we are just, what, four days away from knowing. And I think we're all looking forward to that moment. Let's discuss... In my mind, Robert, the three most important Senate states in the country, and of course there are governor races in three of them, all three of them as well, Georgia, Nevada, Pennsylvania, for a long time, the argument has been, and I think it makes perfect sense, the party that can win two out of those three, Georgia, Nevada, Pennsylvania, two of the three Senate races will control the Senate in the next Congress. As you look at those three states, what are you seeing? What are the numbers saying? What should we anticipate or expect on Tuesday? Well, if I had to rank them, I'd say Nevada is most likely to be a Republican win. Uh, I, we haven't really seen anything that goes backward from any of the polls that have I have any respect for. Any of the polls that have decent uh, error rates are all showing a pretty sizable win uh, for uh, Black Salt. Uh, Georgia, I think, is our next most likely win on this one. And part of that is because all of the real credible polls since the debate show Herschel even, e- either even or ahead. And, and we were talking about landmark, great tradition in Georgia, working with TV networks, our poll, two and a half points for Herschel, inside advantage, three points uh, up, and we have the best two records in Georgia. Then, you, then you've also got uh, Rasmussen, and then you got New York Times, Siena poll, and that one has one of the lowest, uh, one of the highest error rates from 2020. And so I think there's a Survey USA out there. I mean, this, I don't even know why they put that stuff out there anymore. It's just not, I, I think that's, that is, Herschel's going to win that. He will more than likely win it in a runoff. But the circumstances that have happened with the passing of Coach 
uh, Dooley and hit him putting this video out, uh, commercial out for Herschel. That's kind of the last thing he did on this earth. Uh, and all the, the news domination that Dewey's death has. This is like the Bear Bryant of Alabama. It has dominated the news in such a way that politics has been second tier. And when you freeze an election in time like that and people quit talking about it, uh, somebody who has the lead tends to hold on to that lead. And there's just a lot of nostalgia going on right now and a lot of talk about it. And you can't discuss uh, Coach Dewey without talking about his star player, Herschel Walker, and one of his favorite players and his national champion player and his, uh, you know, hurt, uh, won the house. So you Brody. think there's a chance that Herschel could maybe get this thing done on Tuesday without a runoff? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. I think all these circumstances lead that as a really potential. You know, Coach Dooley always had a way of getting what he wanted, and he might, he might, he might even do it in his passing because so he, he was all in. So to continue here, I would then just rank – based on what you've already said, by process of elimination, Pennsylvania is the least likely of those three for the Republicans to win. Dr. Oz, I see in your latest poll, your final poll of that race, I believe, Dr. Oz up by two points. That is reflective of some of the polling. Other polling shows Fetterman still ahead. I know there's a lot of analysis of the early vote saying it's good for the Democrats, other people saying not so fast. Quickly, bottom line, Pennsylvania for us. Well, the bottom line is, if the Republican establishment had given Mastriano anything, Oz would be winning this thing by three points. These these races are symbiotic. People don't understand it. It's true. People don't split tickets that much. Uh, I think Oz's rise has to do with his what he's done in the debate and the fact that we also saw Mastriano close within five. Mastriano has a great organization. Oz has great earned media and paid media. And if they could figure out a way to get on the same page closer to the election, I think they both benefit. But I think Mastriano's strength in the end will prevent enough ticket splitting. Uh, I think that will put up a situation where Oz can win. Uh, I think it's going to be tight because my reputation of what I think of Pennsylvania's elections and their fairness is well known. But I think uh, Oz better win it by two and a half points to be safe. Do you think then chips down Georgia, Nevada, Pennsylvania, not in that order? You said Nevada first, then Georgia, then Pennsylvania. Do you think the Republicans sweep those Senate seats? I'd say they win at least two out of three, but and I'd also and I would also throw in I think uh even more likely than Pennsylvania you may see an upset in New Hampshire. More likely than Pennsylvania. Because Pennsylvania's gonna be tough. I mean I I I don't have any doubt that Oz will get the most votes. But <laughs> Okay. But you think that their system there might be a little uh a little suspect. What about Arizona real quick? Yeah, this libertarian getting out of that race is tremendous uh, uh, for helping out Masters. You know, he might be the only guy who could have gotten that done. It, you, if you just assume a third of the people are still going to vote for the libertarian who's still on the ballot or have already voted early for the libertarian, uh, you still, I think, you can take two-thirds of that vote and put it behind Masters, and now you got 49, 49, 48, 48. It, it's a jump ball, and I, I just I don't like an incumbent who's better ninety percent with Biden, uh, who has a perfect contrast in the other U.S. senator who's kind of bucked his, their party. So you know she's kind of been wearing the pants over there and showing reminding people in Arizona what they want their senator to do. I just don't like his odds if he doesn't go into that election over fifty. I think Masters has a great chance to win that thing. Okay. Robert Cahaley, stand by. There's a few more races I still want to get to. Let's do that right after this short break. It's The Guy Benson Show.
The Guy Benson Show. More next. We are back on The Guy Benson Show with our guest, Robert Cahaley, who is the chief pollster at Trafalgar. Last but not least, you poll a lot of races. I see Michigan governor. I see Colorado Senate, Washington Senate. Is there kind of a dark horse race out there that you think is most interesting, most intriguing, most ripe for an upset that maybe people aren't generally talking about that much? Well, I think you have two. Uh, well, actually, all three ones just mentioned. Um, Colorado surprised me. I kind of written that one off because we had uh, a day so far back. Uh, but people said he 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 kind of cleaned up his problem with some of the conservatives and got built some uni- unity. And so I now see that as competitive. Not sure he's going to get there, but it's going to be uh, going to be a close one. Washington State absolutely is going to be close. They only had like uh, 700,000 of uh, 3 million of uh, the ballots in, and it's all mail, uh, mail and election. People can bring the thing the about to the polls on election day, or they can get a postmark election day. So I think that was so close. We're not going to know who wins that one for a while. And Michigan is less about the governor's race, more about the constitutional amendments or the propositions on the ballot. But Prop 3 has got a lot of people fired up. And when people come out to vote against Prop 3, I don't think they vote Democrat. Okay. Quick, since we didn't talk about the governor's races at all, but we talked about a bunch of the states, let me just say what I'm seeing in your polling. And you can say if you agree or disagree, it looks like in Georgia, Nevada, New Hampshire and Arizona, the Republicans are favored or heavily favored to win the governorships or hold them. In Pennsylvania and Colorado, those will be blue. Does that all sound right on the gubernatorial front? I I would say that, yeah, but I wouldn't concede that those are going to be blue because, again, what I've been saying from the very beginning is there is a a vote, what I call submerged voters, that are not participating in polls. It's different than anything I've ever had because they feel threatened, like Biden trying to make a list of MAGA voters. Uh, I hear about it a lot. Uh, We've talked about this before. I think that you cannot measure how big that group is. It could be I've, my best estimate, it could be half a point to five points. And if it gets in the five-point range, anything is possible. So you think not, you think overall bottom line, Robert Cahaley, that if anything, the polls are underestimating Republicans this cycle again? Absolutely. I've said it two months ago. Every poll will underestimate Republican turnout, including ours, because we just can't get them to participate. Well, we will be watching very intently on Tuesday night. And if that's right, then the wave will be very significant. We'll see. Robert Cahaley, chief pollster at the Trafalgar Group. Robert, really appreciate it. Thanks so much for your time. Always great to be on your show, man. And the Guy Benson Show is back right after this. Back on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you very much for listening. GuyBensonShow.com is the website, podcast always free. And with us now is Brian Kemp, the 83rd governor of Georgia. It's great to have you back here, Governor. Hey, great to be on, Guy. Good afternoon. Great to talk to you. Four days out. How are you feeling? What are you seeing? Man, feeling great. We just finished up our fifth bus tour stop of the day in Walton County, Georgia, just up the road from Athens. And just had incredible crowds. Had Governor Chris Christie out on the trail with us today. We've had Governor Ducey, Vice President Pence. Just people are excited here. We got the whole rest of the ticket from Herschel Walker and everybody else on the trail too. Uh, just 
crisscrossing the state, and Republicans are fired up. I think we're going to have a good day Tuesday. We've got to keep working. We need to have a big turnout on Tuesday, but things are looking good. We just had Herschel on earlier in the show. I was asking him about the polling as well. You've been comfortably ahead, or at least somewhat comfortably ahead, for most of this race. Uh, Sort of on the low end, you're up four. On the high end, you're up 10 or 11 points. In terms of what you need to do to win decisively without a runoff and maybe even help the rest of the ticket, Herschel especially, get over that that mark and maybe avoid a runoff, what does that look like? What are you guys going to need on Tuesday? Well, I hope we're getting close. I mean, it's hard to predict those kind of things. I mean, the modeling we're seeing looks really good. Just the, you know, my gut feeling is that people are very excited on our side, not so much on the Democratic side. But, look, this is no time to lay down. Uh, If we have a big turnout on Tuesday, I think there's a chance the whole ticket can win without a runoff. That's what we're doing. That's why we're working as hard as we ever have. We've been doing that for three weeks now on our bus tour, just traveling the state telling people, look, we got to turn out. we got to turn out big. People are doing that here uh, in early voting, and Republicans are too, where traditionally we're behind, so we're holding, the, we're holding our own there. But we got to have a big, big push election day to get everybody over the hump, including Herschel, and I think we can do that. Yep, big, motivated turnout, a key on Tuesday. I have to ask you this, Governor. I saw this headline, and I did – a bit of a double take. Then I clicked on the story in the journal constitution and read it. Did you wake up today knowing that a man named Kwanzaa Hall was going to endorse you for reelection? What happened here? Yeah, we, we did. Uh, He reached out uh, yesterday and, uh, you know, I've known Kwanzaa for quite a while, you know, former congressman and he's, he's been a face I've seen around the Capitol, certainly around the city of Atlanta, and I think he just appreciates tough decisions that I've made, and it's like you said in the statement, you know, he may not agree with everything I've done, but he knows I'm a man of principle. He knows I'm fighting to help Georgians fight through 40-year high inflation and high gas prices and uh, disastrous policies of the Biden administration that are raising taxes on hardworking Georgians, where in Georgia we've been cutting taxes, returning taxpayer money to them in the form of a rebate suspending the gasoline tax here to people fight to help people fight through Joe Biden's disastrous domestic energy policy. And, you know, he wants to see our state keep moving in the right direction. And I believe that's why he endorsed me. But, you know, I've got other Democrats endorsing me too, guy. You know, we got a bunch of Democratic sheriffs endorsing me. We have 111 sheriffs across the state. Several Democrats are endorsing because they know I'm going to stand with them in law enforcement. And they know I have been standing with them. You know, my record speaks for itself. And and that's what they're supporting, and they know I got their back, and that's one of the reasons we're going to win on Tuesday. Yeah, I want to ask you more about the sheriffs in a second, but just for a moment on this guy, Kwanzaa Hall, who in Georgia politics, people might know him. Elsewhere in the country, just correct me if I'm wrong, Governor, he was a Democratic congressman, and he just recently ran for statewide office as a Democrat. He lost in his primary, but he is a Democrat, and he decided— a few days out from the election and announced today that he's backing you. I feel like the easiest thing in the world for him to have done was to either stay silent or to just say, hey, we're with Stacey and Warnock and the whole thing and just being a loyal Democrat. I think it it takes some stones for him to come out and do what he did in the high-profile way that he did, given everything that's happening down in that state. That strikes me as kind of a big deal. Well, I think this is what we're seeing, Guy, here, and, you know, we're starting to see this around the country, too. The Democrats are fractured. You know, the Republicans are uniting uh, to win in 2022. 
And uh, that's the way I feel. I mean, look, Kwanzaa ran for lieutenant governor as a Democrat. He got in the runoff with another Democrat. The Stacey Abrams actually endorsed in the runoff, so she got engaged in that race. And, you know, he hasn't told me this, but, I, I you know, I kind of assume that he's he's not real happy about her engaging against him <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, versus letting them just, you know, fight that out in the runoff. And, and you know, I, feel, I think he feels like that was bad for their party, and, and they you know, he doesn't think she's going to be the best leader. Uh, for them or for our state. And, you know, Kwanzaa's a, a Georgian that loves this state and wants us to con- continue to do well. And I think that's why, you know, he's not only supporting me, he's supporting our Lieutenant Governor nominee, Burt Jones, as well. Yep. Governor Kemp, there have been a few things that your opponent has said over the course of this campaign that sort of would make people stop in their tracks for a second. One of them that you and I have spoken about before, and I know you've talked about it a lot, was when she called Georgia the worst state in the country to live in. Uh, You clearly disagree with that. You are the incumbent governor. She sometimes thinks or talks like she's the incumbent governor, but she's not. Then at your last debate, when you were talking about all those sheriffs who had endorsed you, at the time I think it was 107. sounds like you've picked up a a few more ones, Uh, you know, four more if it's 111 these days. But you were saying I've got the backing of all these sheriffs across the whole state, and she had none. And her response to that was to say, well, that's because law enforcement, I'm paraphrasing, but we've played it on the air. That's because law enforcement wants to go around and take black people off the streets. Like law enforcement is motivated in the state of Georgia to discriminate against and to imprison willy-nilly black people. That was like us basically saying they're racists. They're motivated by racism. So, of course, they're not going to endorse me. That was a pretty shocking smear, even for her. Well, look, this is a pattern for her, and I think, you know, what she said upset a lot of uh, sheriffs around the state, you know, labeling every one of them as part of the good old boys network when, you know, Sheriff Janice Mangum, who has endorsed me, uh, she was the second female sheriff ever in this state, went on Fox News and, you know, really land blasted her for that, you know, saying that she was supporting me because I've been a pro-law enforcement governor and she didn't appreciate being painted is part of the good old boy network, because she certainly is not, and neither are any of these sheriffs out there. I mean, they're going to follow the law. They're going to lock people up to break the law, and they're leaders in their community. And she's caught a lot of blowback. There's been a lot of sheriffs here that are posting messages on their Facebook pages and sending letters to the editor and, and to Mrs. Abrams. But this is a pattern of her saying she'd defund the police. She wants to eliminate cash bail. She continues to sit on the board of the Margaret Casey Foundation. Uh, where they're raising money and giving grants to organizations and and people around the country that are pushing the defund the police movement. And that's why we're going to get a big surge from the pro-law enforcement vote in our state. And I think you're going to see that move voters all across the country, Guy. The Democrats have completely been asleep at the wheel on this issue. They're talking about issues that don't really matter to a lot of Georgians and a lot of Americans. They're focused on keeping their family safe and wanting somebody that's going to help do that in governor's offices and in the U.S. Senate and in local offices around the state and around the country. But they also want people that are going to focus on, help, on helping them fight through 40-year high inflation, disastrous energy policy, a disaster at the border. Uh, you know, federal government wants to raise your taxes, spend more money. And, uh, you know, it's just not working for our country. And I think you're going to see a big pushback on Tuesday. We're also seeing absolutely massive voter turnout in the early voting I saw Raphael Warnock, for example, said, thank God for all this turnout. I guess it's heaven sent, according to him. But 
He had also called the new law that you implemented Jim Crow. Of course, your opponent was the leading advocate on that and driving the boycott. She's hilariously trying to blame you for the boycotts that she caused. President Biden called it worse than Jim Crow, what you guys did. And yet another record-shattering turnout post the implementation of this law. I mean, it's, it's pretty remarkable to see their lies melting down in real time before our eyes. Yeah, look, Warnock's voted with Biden 96 percent of the time. And, uh, you know, Abrams defends him all the time and auditioned to be his vice presidential candidate. And he said this legislation was Jim Crow on steroids and attacked us multiple times, as did Kamala Harris and a lot of other people, uh, including Major League Baseball pulling the All-Star game. Mm -hmm. But we stood strong because we knew what the truth was. And I know we've talked about this a lot, Guy. Uh, but the bill makes it easy to vote and hard to cheat in Georgia. And we're seeing and are, it. Like, you know, it's like you would come on the air and you you do our show very generously. You'd say, that's not true. This is what's going to happen. And then guess what? In reality, what they said is not true. And what you said would happen is happening. Governor Kemp, very quickly, 15 seconds. I saw President Biden was down in Florida doing a rally for the Democrats. Are you jealous of Florida? Do you wish President Biden would come to Georgia and help you out that way? Oh, man. Yeah, they brought Obama to Georgia, but they won't bring Biden. I wish maybe he'll come Monday. That would be. Yeah, we'll see. Don't hold your breath. Big turnout needed on Tuesday. Governor Kemp, great to talk to you. Good luck. Thanks a lot. Go Dogs. Brian Kemp, the governor of Georgia. On the Guy Benson Show, home stretch coming up. Home stretch, almost of the weekend here on the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com, the website, podcast free every day on demand. And that includes bonus Benson on the weekends. Tomorrow, I'm doing the big Saturday show, 5 p.m., Fox News Channel, co hosting that. Sunday, it'll be Fox and Friends in the morning. And then a special pre election outnumbered at noon on the news channel. That is on Sunday. Monday, a lot of TV as well including Gutfeld and then election coverage on Tuesday. Busy, busy stuff here. Earlier this hour with Robert Cahaley from Trafalgar, we asked him about New York. And I mentioned some of these big Democratic hitters coming in to try to help pull Kathy Hochul across the finish line. One of them is the extremely articulate, serious, and popular vice president of the United States, who once again harped on one of her very favorite themes. Cut 31. And what we are also seeing is that if you look at, you know, I like Venn diagrams, okay? So if you look, (laughs) I do. And um, if you look at the intersection on some of these issues, it's pretty profound and very clear. I was hoping for some Venn diagram talk. I love it when she talks about Venn diagrams. Don't we all? It's gold, Kamala. Stick with it. We love the content. By the way, do we know how she got from D.C. to New York? The wheels on the bus go round and round. The wheels on the bus go all through the town. I don't know if she talked about yellow school buses on behalf of Kathy Hochul. Probably. It's one of her go-tos. Meanwhile, I want to do a callback. To one of our topics here this week on the show, I also got up on a soapbox on Kennedy's show about this as well. We played the clip of Mariah Carey's 
little transformation video from Halloween season to Christmas where she's a wicked witch riding a Peloton for some reason, and then the snow blows through, and it's Christmas, and she sings, it's time, in a very high pitch, and then they start playing All I Want for Christmas is You as she's dancing and laughing, and there's snow falling, and she's in a little Santa elf-type outfit. And the point I've been making is it's not time. It's not even close. Thanksgiving comes first, and that's a very important, cherished American holiday Then we can get to Christmas. In fact, I just ordered my turkey today, reserved the turkey today for Thanksgiving dinner, which we're hosting. And I'm not the only one who feels this way because I posted it on my personal Instagram and Twitter, at Guy P. Benson. Got a lot of feedback from a lot of Thanksgiving traditionalists who are on board with me. And then earlier today on the Today Show, I believe it was, on NBC, someone who I think is known for her taste in things, endorsed my proposition, endorsed my line of thinking, specifically as it relates to the Mariah Carey video, take it away, Martha Stewart. Mariah, you know me. I am a traditionalist with a twist, and uh, you cannot give up Thanksgiving. Just because you don't like turkey, I love turkey, and many, (laughs) many other people love turkey. So do not think that we're going to give up Thanksgiving just because you say so. Thank you, Martha Stewart. Thank you. And this, this is part of the reason why I do support some criminal justice reform, because of ex felons like Martha Stewart who can make something of themselves after they serve their debt to society. <laughs> it's, just, it's amazing that she's uh, been in the slammer in her career. What was it? Was it white collar of some sort, some insider trading stuff? But she's exactly right about Thanksgiving. I endorse it fully. Christine, she is one of the more famous women ever to come out of New Jersey. And I feel like... You should not cross Martha Stewart. You should be on Team Martha Stewart here. Okay, I'm just going to say this because she does scare me. Um, Why, because she's an ex-felon? No, no, she was scary before that. Uh, No one is saying that we're skipping Thanksgiving. I never said I was. Did you ever hear the words out of my mouth, I'm not celebrating Turkey Day? No, no, it's not the lack of celebration. It's the skipping to all the Christmas stuff, and then Thanksgiving's like a quick little afterthought on the road to Christmas. The road to Christmas starts after Thanksgiving. That's the difference. I just want you to know, I have a wooden turkey decoration that says, gobble till you wobble. I'm just saying it's it's out there. So there there is what why are they laughing what's happening over you here You found the worst possible Thanksgiving related trinket and you procured it which is on brand gobble till you wobble Usually it's not food that makes you wobble Right it's another part of the feast if I recall correctly How do you do it anything I say anything I text Anything I email turns into something about me drinking. Well, wobble was low-hanging fruit. Wobble was a pretty easy one. By the way, one more thing before we go for the weekend here. I did start White Lotus because we were talking about The Mole, which I hope you all are going to try to watch because it is very good. What, Christine? I tried to watch it last night. You don't like it? No, it bored me. Bobby's obsessed, by the way. That also sounds right. 
It's a thinking person show. <laughs> serious. Take, you can't say that on air. <laughs> They're just roasting her in there. Anyway, you guys had said that White Lotus was really good. I am one episode into season one, and I have to ask, does it get better than episode one? Because episode one did not really do much for me. It's kind of like uh, S Creek. Remember the first seasons? Like you have to keep keep going. Okay, just keep going. Yeah, the characters definitely develop a lot more, and a lot better things happen. It's kind of all set up in the beginning. Yeah, because nothing yeah. really has happened. Yeah, exactly. It's only one episode. I get it, but it didn't really make me desperate to go and watch more of it. But it sounds like the consensus, Wyatt, stick with it. Yes, retweet what both they said. Both of them, what they said. It, you just got to keep going. Okay, and so we shall. It's the weekend. When we come back here on the radio show, it'll be the day before the election. Amazing. We will have in-depth coverage Monday and Tuesday, then Reaction Wednesday. So much excitement coming on The Guy Benson Show. In the meantime, try to enjoy your weekend. Gobble till you wobble. Get ready for Thanksgiving. And we will talk to you on Monday. Jesus drank wine. Cookie drinks Cosmos. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.